0: This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today, we're speaking to a member of the US military who has just been in Afghanistan helping to get Afghans out and various other people now that the US has lost the war and the Taliban has taken over there. Now, this lad is not really meant to be doing this, so we're not going to name him, but rest assured, I have triple checked. This guy is who he says he is. He was there on the ground. What he's got to say is interesting. The narrative is a little bit different to what we've been hearing uh, in the news. If you like what we're doing, please support us at patreon.com slash popular front. But without revealing too much, maybe just explain what you've been doing in Afghanistan uh, for the last few weeks. Um,
1: So, my job there was to provide um, support in a variety of ways. There's some systems that they needed to get up, so I did that. Um, In addition to some combat enabler stuff, um, God, it's it's basically force protection. Um, That's the best way to sum things up. So, I was there on, on a force protection
0: capacity. Got you, got you. Um and as a soldier, maybe maybe just kind of tell us what sort of things you were actually seeing out there.
1: That was the thing. Um I've I've been in for a couple of years now. This was my first deployment. Um, if we even want to call it that. It was definitely interesting. Um when when we got there, um on the way there, actually, the bird there, there was a bunch of Air Force Special Operations guys that got scratched off the flight, like, last minute. Like, we, we got laid over. and like, hey, you guys aren't going. So then you have half the plane uh, going over there with half of the original intended passengers. And these were some pretty important guys. I dare say more important than me. Um, so I was like, okay, what capabilities are we bringing there? We also brought a bunch of vehicles that the operators of said vehicles also got scratched. So I ended up driving stuff that didn't belong to me. Um, so it was just confusion. We had no direction. We didn't know where we were going or if we were even going to Afghanistan. We had a hunch. Um, but we didn't know That's one thing. I don't think the news has really done a good job of illustrating what exactly was going on there in terms of, like, it wasn't really that peaceful of an operation. Uh, There's tracers all through the sky, and and normally things would get calmer during the night, but tracers everywhere, you hear the gunfire, um, the smell hits you right away. Like, it does not smell like your average place. It was a Taliban shooting, right? that's the thing we don't know, or at least I don't. Um, I assume it could have been them. It could have been ISIS. It could have been us. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that our towers were shooting to keep people at bay. Um, I know that the Taliban was taking pot shots and I do know that ISIS was trying to stir the pot. But, um, just driving over that first night, you, it, it looked like a movie to be honest. Like there was a ton of refugees, um, a ton of special operations guys, people from all over the country. Um, People from all over the world actually, like multinational forces, just posted up everywhere. And then we finally got to a compound um, on one side of the beach, Cayo, which was a little—I don't know—it's like a mini city. And um, it was honestly the whole thing that's coming up was confusion. But uh, during the day, there's a lot of gunfire nonstop. Um, it was supposed to be a, a non. There's, a, there's an acronym, NEO. I don't really know what it stands for, but basically it was supposed to be a peaceful evacuation. And for the most part it was, but you have support personnel getting shot at uh, around the clock almost. If you're on any roofs or anything, they'll shoot at you from the city. And then on our way out, we were sleeping under Humvees on the tarmac, and we were actually like waking up to glass getting hit. Um, they're up armored of course, so it's fine, but not all of them were. Glass getting hit, there's bullets all over the place or ISIS who hopped over the the fence um, or the, the big concrete barriers around the base. During those six to nine days, you got a chance to kind of explore the base and see what was going on. So I did odd ends and and jobs and whatnot, just helping out where I could. Um, But for one, the massive amount of stuff that was abandoned there, like I'm not even talking around military stuff. You can open up Connexes full of flat-screen TVs and computers and furniture and and food. There was food for days just laying around. When we occupied where we were, there was food being half-prepared. That was just kind of left out. And uh, these connexes were stacked to the brim of everything to include a lot of military equipment, too, um, lots of contractor stuff. I think Five Eleven and Rocky made a killing out there because you had entire connexes full of their boots. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, nifty Department of State goods laying around, T-shirts, hats, all that cool stuff. But it was crazy to me that we had all this expensive stuff and we're either throwing it into burn pits or just leaving it to lay around to include... Aircraft, which I assume were inoperable, but they were still there, and that's a lot of armor, a lot of uniforms, a lot of equipment that were just laying there. Um, but in, in terms of what I actually did or what I saw, um, just just constant confusion. Uh, not to say that our, our leadership was adequately prepared, but I think that the situation was so very fluid that there really was no way to to know what was going to happen. Like we knew that we were going to push out, but then something about a statement that no U.S. people are going to leave before Afghan refugees leave came out, and then that kind of flip-flopped things. Um, and then also, my own theory is that we wanted to kind of telegraph to, if you see, like, I don't know, 12 C-17s flying, and you're assuming that they're all loaded to there, um, and and that's that's definitely going to try to, that's, that's going to repel any future attacks, in my eyes. They're going to think there's more people there than actually there, because have full c17s or only i don't know 13 people on one you don't have to evacuate those people later but the enemy still thinks that you have that capability on the ground of that many people and that many vehicles that would make sense that or just poor planning but either way a lot of
0: it didn't make sense at all and what were your uh what were your superiors saying to all of this because it sounds like you were very confused on the ground but i'm imagining they were quite confused as well
1: (laughs) i mean at the company level yes um we kind of just got used to, like, being told 90 different things. The, the rumor mill was in full circle here. Like, there was no shortage of rumors going on. Um, and you didn't really hear too much from people that high up in the chain. Um, but their their priority was pretty steadfast, like, taking care of these refugees. Um, actually, it, it's kind of messed up with the ROE situation since it was peaceful. You know, we, we were supposed to be working with the Taliban. And I think for the most part, we were. Um, on the whiteboards before people abandoned stuff, they'd like to, like one of the hangers had a whiteboard that had ROE written out for the contractors that were there before us. And their ROE was like, don't shoot the Taliban, the Taliban can shoot civilians. And then right underneath you go And there was a lot of that going on. Um, the interpreters, or really anybody coming in, they have three courses of action. Either they got accepted, um, they got turned around because they didn't have good paperwork and the Taliban would take them away. Um, I've heard they kill people uh, or, or mess them up at least. And then some of the people that got stuck there, you'd have time to talk to them and they'd be covered in cuts, bruises, everything. Um, even the interpreter and I interacted with, um, their number one priority was interpreting, of course, but whenever they could get a break, like any time, Hey, can you take me to Northgate? Can you take me to, to wherever? Like I need to get some more family. in. It was an absolute mad rush to get out in the Superior were either focused on immediate administrative tasks such as, you know, food, water, how are we going to... There was no shortage of food and water, but you had to forage for it. It was the Wild West. around it could-
0: Sounds like it was really badly planned. I mean, I'm no military person. You know, I've been to war, but not as a combatant. I've never followed orders or anything like that. I've never been in the military. But just on a personal level, it sounds extremely badly planned. You know.
1: I mean, to an extent, if you look at the bandwidth, the people that got. Either the Taliban takes it or we do. And so you'd see these these shops that were just, nobody's running them. Everything's got it. It's, it's a ghost town. And they have food. Well, you know, mm-hmm. it, the windows are already busted. It might as well go and get some. You would see some pretty decently high-ranking people, you know. I, would, and I don't want to call it looting because that seems really shitty. Um, like, if you see a collapsed building and you're taking stuff out of it, that's kind of the same mentality was there. Either we get this food or the Taliban gets this food. It's just anything to keep people's spirits up. Um, but in terms of the planning, like the the defense posture for everything we had going on there, from what I understood was almost impeccable. It was just you're dropping a lot of people with minimal time, which is the, the purpose of, you know, 82nd Airborne um, airfield seizure operations with a minimal amount of time and preparation to, to basically overcome this task. And that's one thing that I think is very misunderstood, where with conventional military operations, you have a set plan. You have a set way forward. But with the way they Second Trains and operates, it's more of a, um, they have this term they call the LGOP, little group of paratroopers. Once you're out of that bird, all plans go into the wind. And, yeah, we didn't jump in, but you have, you know, medics working with intelligence professionals. You have engineers working with cooks. And that was happening a lot on the ground. It wasn't absolutely chaos, Mm -hmm. but people really had to become Jack Small trades down there because they were trying to minimize Manning and maximize how much they could do. And really, you can only plan so much when you're getting told, "What are we really pulling out? What is what's the plan ahead?" Like, there's some limiting factors, um, and I won't really. I'm not going to pin it on any, like, executive power or anything, but there certainly are some limiting factors where if you don't have clear, concise guidance, um, then it's going to be hard to operate. And if you do get clear, concise guidance, that might be a risk because if they know we're pulling out on this date, then they'll know to flood in right. you know, on a certain a certain date or time. So it's just a risky
0: situation and it realistically it's a lose-lose regardless of how you execute it. Absolutely. Um, were you in direct contact with the Taliban at any point or your superiors or whatever? Not
1: myself. I know um, some buddies that were pulling deep guard. Um, their direct contact was probably a table length away from them um, and the majority of that contact consisted of pretty much shit-talking. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a language barrier, of course, but body language can go far away. Yeah. Um, and, and when the Taliban would get sick of that, they'd kind of just give you that universal wave you off, like go away. If they don't like you. Um, there's rumors that people above us were. I mean, you you'd have to assume that they were, and that that's how things would work. There's enough there's enough special operations folks on the ground there that I would I would be surprised if there wasn't a direct communication with them, especially with all the correspondence back and forth and and the. Um, The coordination, like they knew which areas to pull security on. They knew where not to touch. Um, Granted, every single night, every single day, as a matter of fact, calmed down a little bit during the night, but there was very consistent gunfire from all through the city, all through Kabul, um, over the base, towards the helicopters, towards the aircraft. I don't really think any got hit. It was very inaccurate, but it was there. Um, A lot of it was celebratory. I know that much. Um, and of course there's our towers who were given the explicit instructions of like, Hey, if people are getting too close, they're getting too froggy, you fire back. If right. you, they contested, you fire back. But apart from that, like the communication really wasn't happening on a company or even brigade level, I feel like.
0: That's interesting. Um, when you spoke to the people that were trying to flee, you know, essentially the people you were helping there, the Afghans, what kind of things were they telling you?
1: One of them, um first of all, all of them were extremely, extremely forthcoming and wanted to do nothing but help. Like, they had their own little shifts that they were supposed to help with, and the rest of the time was theirs, and many of them offered to, to stay after and do whatever they could to help out. And, of course, there's that kind of level of distrust, like, I'm working with a new person here, I don't know what their intentions are, but they seem nothing but genuine, and they, they wanted to do good things with us. Many of them worked with us for many years, um, back to when all this started in 2001, 2002, uh, they've they've worked with America for a while. Um there was one lady we worked with that her thing, um, even during her shift was like, Hey, um, an uncle's friend's brother just texted me and they need help through the gate. I can get them through there. And if you're an interpreter working on that installation, that's like your your golden ticket to get in. Mm-hmm. So their number one concern was getting people in. They they knew the the imminent threat. Um some, some of them were kind of upset with, you know, it's like you win the lottery. You have all these people you've never met kind of hitting you up for help. They're going through that. Um, so, of course, there's that sense of it. But in terms of how they felt about the situation with the Taliban, I could only assume. I never really asked them
0: that. Well, one thing, I would, if you just have time, one thing, um, you you were there when the, the ISIS um attack, right? What was that like?
1: Um, so, can you say that? I know people who were involved with the, the transfer, dignified transfer remains, or at least the immediate, like, aftermath. Um, and that was just horrendous for everybody there. Like, we all kind of knew there was an impending threat, but when you're surrounded on all sides, like, you can't really predict for that. And, and I was talking to some guys yesterday, and they're like, oh, now they got complacent. They, they should have been watching. But you can't, like, if you, if you go to those gates... It's like World War Z, like, you literally, you're getting swarmed by people. There's CS gas getting popped around the clock, non lethal all the time. And you really don't know what's going to happen until it happens. And, of course, um, if you see the people who are killed, one of them was a was the guy from the Army, um, psychological operations. I, I assume I've been told that he was a lot of loudspeaker, and that's kind of where the people keep in order, and that's how they keep control of um, you know, by by messaging people, keep calling, we'll get you through. Things are going to be okay. Turning that person is just going to cause chaos, and then the small arms fire after. I don't know who is shooting. Um, could be ISIS. Could be us. I have no clue. But it just breaks my heart that innocent people were caught up in that in that shit storm.
0: Yeah, man, it was fucked. Um, I, I know you. I know you were, uh You don't have a lot of time. I'll let you go in a second. But I just wondered, as as a soldier, you know, you you're a US soldier. Um, And after 20 years, this war has been lost, and you've just been there on the ground, literally helping get people out as America leaves. How do you feel about that?
1: My dad was in the same war that I just went to. Wow. And... fighting back and trying to take back their land. Mm-hmm. Um, but me, as a soldier, I think it is not only a, a bad day for America, um, but a bad day for the people of Afghanistan, because the Taliban, as much as they want to say they were formed, and as much as they want to say that they are they're a new organization that's on international cooperation, women's rights, trade, um, all these things that would really you know, make them seem like a legitimate nation. And I think the only people right now are recognizing them as one is China. Um, but they're not. They're the same as they were before. You see them, you know, killing innocent people. They opened up on, when I was there, they opened up on a massive crowd of people. And, and it's not just military-aged males. I, I hate that narrative. It is women. It's children. Like, I've never seen so many orphans in my life. And they're going to grow up not knowing what the hell they just went through the interpreters told me, like, the gunfire, it's horrible for the children. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's probably, like, really bad for their ears. She's like, no, like, their brains, their hearts, they're not supposed to grow up with that. Yeah. And truth be told, um, yeah, that that destroys them. They're not growing up normal. And I I know that the ones who get out, they still have a battle. It's not going to be easy to, to be at a new place with all you have is the clothes on your back. Um, the lady on the plane next to us gave birth when she was landing a guitar, and that's a new chapter of her life. But as a soldier, I'm glad I could help out and, you know, be one of the last few people to actually leave that country. Um, and I can I can only hope that in the future, things will improve there. I know historically, the, the tire, the, things have been stacked against it but I genuinely do hope for better things. I think that sentiment is shared with everybody
0: here. All right, mate. Well, thank you for being so candid with us. Is there anything else you want to say? I only was there about a week. It
1: was the longest week of my life, probably.
0: All right, mate. Thank you very much. I'll let you go, um, and I'll definitely be in touch, man. Thanks so much. All right, yeah,
1: I appreciate it. You have a good one. That
0: was... uh... An anonymous US soldier uh, Speaking about his time Very very recently uh, In Afghanistan He's literally only just got out Um, very interesting I know it wasn't very long I know the sound is all fucked up um, and we had to change his voice but I'm sure you can understand something like this this lad is really not meant to be speaking to the media but he felt that he wanted to put his point across and say what he saw out there um, and he chose to speak to Popular Front so thank you very much to that guy if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front or popularfront.co slash support you can donate in different ways or uh, support us however you want uh, this episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA, then independent coffee shop business uh, selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest, Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them that Popular Front sent you. The episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Find them on socials. At Grindcore House Uh, The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis An outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda From around the world You can buy their prints at Propagandopolis.com Use promo code PopularFront10 for 10% off Um, Again, if you want to support us directly Patreon.com slash PopularFront10 follow us on social media instagram at popular front twitter at popular front co youtube.com slash popular front if you want to find me uh at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n find me on wherever i am twitter whatever um music in this episode the intro was by home And the outro was by Sam Black. Find his music at samblackpf.com. Not going to read the uh, Patreon names for this episode for various reasons, but yeah, check us out, patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode was mixed and mastered by our friends at Splicing Block.